In 2013, there was a climber who was climbing up Mont Blanc, the tallest mountain in Western Europe, tallest mountain in the Alps. And as he was climbing with his guide and his friends that he was climbing with, he couldn't help but notice there in the snow of the glacier he was making his way up was a jewel, a sapphire that continued to climb emerald, rubies. As they made their way up towards the summit, they were just stunned that they had collected $168,000 worth of precious stones. Coming back down, he did what hopefully all of us honest people would do, report to the authorities what you had found. And that's exactly what he did, turned them all in. And after some investigation, they found out that in 1966, 47 years before he began climbing this mountain, an Air India flight had crashed into Mont Blanc thinking it had already cleared it as it began its descent. Crashing into this mountaintop, all that it was carrying, 117 people, all of the gear, all of the luggage, including someone who had been transferring and sending these precious stones. They spent the last eight years trying to track down an owner or an heir or heiress who would be the rightful recipient of these gems that sat there on Mont Blanc for 47 years. In December of last year, just a few weeks ago, they announced they were giving up the search and there was no one in the world standing up to say, these are mine, I claim these gems. And so they contacted the climber and they said, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna bring in a gem expert and we're gonna divide the pile exactly in half. We're gonna take half of them to the French village that that part of Mont Blanc is in. It shares some real estate with Italy, but this was on a French side, and so they said, we're gonna build a museum, and they're gonna be on display for anyone to see in this museum, but we're gonna give you the other half. And he said, I accept. <laughs> and I've had that story in my heart for these days, these months, as we have been moving toward these holy moments at the outset of a brand new year, an important season in all of our lives, but especially those of you in this 18 to 25 year old space, because so often what happens in the morning of a life sets the course and the direction for the rest of your life, which is why the Bible says, seek now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And studies have found that the majority of people who make faith decisions, the most people who will give their lives to Christ will do so in this space of life when you're young, even more so before the age of 18. But the habits that are set in, the, the patterns that you let in, the ways that you set in into your life, you let into your life become eventually ways that you become set in in your life. And I think it's so beautiful, so wonderful that you have chosen to set aside this space to seek God, to hear from him in his word, to worship him in this season, in this point, this pivotal moment in your, your journey because of the way it's going to alter every season, every day 
And I can think back to moments in my life when I had encounters with God as a freshman in high school, as a freshman in college, as a young 20-something, and how God has continually steered me through those deposits, through those moments. And, and the vision I want for you to have, it's my honor to begin this journey, this conversation that God is going to speak to us through these different sessions and worship leaders, but don't think of them as disconnected segments, but rather a whole of what God is going to do. Here's the vision, here's the picture I have for you as we begin at the outset. It's my honor, and thank you so much, Louis and Shelley, for the honor of entrusting us with being a part of this at all, but especially to, to begin. Yeah, come on, let's thank God for Pastor Louis and Shelley Giglio. but to begin and create a wake for all that God's gonna do. We're climbing a mountain, people, and picking up a gem here and a gem there, a ruby here, a sapphire there, a precious stone to put into your bag, to put into your arsenal that will be a benefit and a blessing to you 20, 30, 40 years from now, ringing out into the ages. And there is such a unity of what God wants to speak through the team and those who are going to be serving and leading you. We're your Sherpas, so to speak, guiding you along, hopefully pointing out the things for you to, to pick up and to put into your bag for the coming days. You might find a, a slightly bigger emerald. That's a Tebow emerald. Grab that. And as we go, we're going to believe that God is going to speak to us in powerful and profound ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, 2 Kings chapter 7 is where we're going to start. I want to talk to you. We just got a big woo for 2 Kings 7. I like it. We're going to start by talking about hunger. We're going to talk about food and specifically what happens when there is no food. The title of this message is Feast or Famine. 2 Kings 7, starting in verse 3, it says, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians if they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, look at this, we shall only die. But that's already what's going to happen to us. So verse 5, they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, and their donkeys and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent, ate and drank, carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and they hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, and they carried some from there also, and they went and hid it. 
Then they stopped and said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And if we remain silent, if we wait until morning light, some punishment surely will come upon us. So therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Our last verse we're going to read. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound. Only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And so Father, we pray, grateful for your word, Grateful to sit here in this moment. So many of us linked together, nations and, and an entire stadium full of people paying attention to you. We speak over this Passion 2022. Speak, Lord. Your servants, listen. Draw those to yourself who don't know you. Do what only you can do. Convict of sin where it is needed. We say like one saint said, your word, God, may it have lips to speak to us, feet to run after us, and hands to lay hold of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have to understand the context of this story to really appreciate the power and the excitement, the euphoria and celebration of these four leprous men who lived a life full of pain, who lived a life full of shame and exile, sitting, hoping, waiting to die with nothing in front of them to look forward to. And all of a sudden now they're eating and they're drinking. They're, they're, they're like having a free shopping spree. They're just grabbing clothes and cheers, cheering each other and eating Twinkies. And, but the good news never is as good if you don't first appreciate and understand the bad news. And this was a bad situation. It was a famine. Now it's not the only famine to be found in Scripture. In fact, there are 11 different famines in the pages of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. There are famines that move along the story of what God is doing, factoring into Abraham, factoring into Joseph. They impact Paul's life in the book of Acts. In fact, Jesus said that famines would continue. He said in Mark's gospel that until he returns to this world, which we are waiting for and eagerly saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, until that day, he said there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be pestilences. There will be troubles. He said there will be famines in various places. And as we look out on the world from when Christ left until this present moment, there has continued to be a theme of trouble and pestilence and wars and rumors of wars, and indeed there have been many, many famines. A famine is a lack of food. A famine is an inability to get to food if the food is there. Here in the text that we're reading, it is a famine that is entirely man-made. It is a famine that has been caused because Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is warring against Joram, the king of Israel, and the capital city, Samaria, and he has encircled the walls, and if anyone leaves the city, they've shut the walls up. They're not coming out, because if they do, they'll be killed or captured, or worse. And so here they sit. Now, at first they had some foodstuffs, they had some food supply, they had their prepper kits, right? So they were doing what they could do. But that ran out, and now there is a serious critical problem. 
If you read in 2 Kings 6, you will find that it got so dire that people were fighting over donkeys' heads. Like that was the only option left. And there was great fighting over dove poop, which was a kind of fuel used to light your home in that day. It got even darker than that because we're told they resorted to cannibalism. The king was approached by two women who had had an argument because one had agreed, let's eat your baby tonight, we'll eat my baby tomorrow night. So they ate the one woman's baby, but then the next night she hid her baby and didn't, and this is the kind of thing that was happening. The king tore his clothes, came to the man of God, Elisha, and Elisha declared that tomorrow the famine was over. By this time tomorrow, we will be eating, we will be celebrating, it will no longer be critical, the situation. And how God would do it, as we just read, is certainly not what anybody would have expected. Now out of all the famines, and I spent some time preparing for this message, just trying to get my head and heart into what it would feel like to be in a famine, there is one that is noteworthy, not for the numbers who died. That distinction goes to some famines that have taken place in China, taken place in the Ukraine. There have been many famines where millions have died. It is, it is a thing, as you look at it, it, it should break all of our hearts and we should all seek to do what we can to make a difference to those who are suffering. But there's one famine I kept coming back to because of the fact that it so disproportionately affected the population of an entire nation. And that nation was Ireland. And so shout out, by the way, to Ellie and to Zara, the two students who have come, two students who have come from Belfast in the United Kingdom to be with us from Northern Ireland. I understand, Ellie, that you're studying to become a paramedic. You're moving to England soon. We welcome you here. Thank you for coming for such from such a long way to be with us. It's awesome. Come on, let's give it up for these two from Ireland here. <laughs> Ireland as a nation from the years 1845 to the year 1851 experienced what is referred to in our country as the Great Potato Famine, which I understand those in Ireland don't like that language because it seems to sort of trivialize what was such a stupendously difficult thing that nation faced where they, for this six-year-long period, were in this incredibly horrible famine that they call Angortha Mor, or the Great Hunger in the Gaelic language, a period of great hunger. But they don't like to call it a famine because that doesn't acknowledge the man, the side of man that factored in, the Ben-Hadad side of things. The fact that this famine was not just a fluke of, of, of weather, but there was elements that played into it that were entirely man-made. Now to understand and appreciate that, you have to understand something of the dynamics between England and Ireland. England conquered Ireland in the year 1169 and spent the next 700 years trying to beat the Irishness out of the Irish. Trying to get them just to become British. Just be a, get with the memo, y'all. The Union Jack is flying. We're in charge. The king, the queen, we, you need to quit it with all this Irishness stuff. And the Irish have never been okay with that. They are pretty fired up about being Irish. And so they refused and they rebelled and they refused and they rebelled all the way up until 1921 when independence was declared uh, by Southern Ireland. And now you have the Republic of Ireland. And, and so it just continued to be a problem. In the year uh, 1367, the British 
put something into effect that would make it more difficult for the Irish to not comply and assimilate. And basically, uh, it, was, it was called the Statutes of Kilkenny. And under the Statutes of Kilkenny, it was illegal to play a harp. The harp was the national instrument of Ireland. And if you were caught playing a harp, they would pull your fingernails out. If you were caught singing songs in Gaelic, you can be jailed. If you were caught riding a horse, not using an English saddle, you could be imprisoned. And still the Irish hung on to their Irishness. It got even more intense when King Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce and the Pope in Rome would not allow it to happen. And so he said, I'm done with you. I'm starting my own church of which I will be the head. So first order of business, chop off Anne Boleyn's head. And then I'm the head of the Church of England. And so now the conflict between the Irish and the British is not just about culture, it's also about religion. He wanted them to be a part of the Church of England and they were not willing or eager to do so. And so Cromwell comes in and there's raids and there's death and there's pillaging. And in the year 1536, something is enacted that is now this new state religion. Like I said, they're not in it. So the penal laws were put into motion. And the penal laws basically made it to where if you did not become a British Protestant, you could not hold a public office. You could not own any property. You could not own a horse worth more than five pounds. You could not uh, be a teacher, which is so ironic considering Irish, the Irish island was the island of saints and scholars. It evangelized what would later become England and held on to so much information through the Dark Ages. We probably wouldn't have the Iliad and the Odyssey had it not been for what they hung on to when the Vikings came aboard the island and, and all this. But now they're not allowed to be teachers. And all of these punishments are put into place if they won't just become British and assimilate. And the penal laws were basically designed to make the Irish poor. And it worked. They became so poor that by the time the, in the 1500s, the potato first showed up from South America in Ireland, which Scotland passed on it. Scotland, they said, no, we can't eat the potato because it's not mentioned in the Bible. But in Ireland, they were fired up on this new mysterious tuber and they began to plant them like crazy because the people were so poor and it was a really easy, easy thing to grow. All it took was one acre of land to grow enough potatoes to feed your family for the entire year and your pig as well which they grew not to eat, but to pay the rent. They called the pig that lived in the same home with them the gentleman who pays the rent. Because in selling that pig, they would pay their rent on land that their house was on that they no longer owned, that was a part of their ancestry, but it had been taken from them and now belonged to an absentee landlord who lived in England, maybe or maybe did not visit Ireland ever in his life, but owned the land, collected the rent through a middleman, a slumlord, a shark who uh, cared very little for the people that he was dealing with. And so these people, 50% of them, by the time the famine began, lived in windowless mud huts with a pig sleeping in the house with them, sleeping on straw on the ground, and only able to survive because of the potato. Turns out if you add buttermilk to a potato and that's all you eat, it has everything a human body needs to sustain growth and turns out it's even healthier than the bread and the cheese that the British were eating. So the Ireland grew robust and they grew strong. But here's the catch. 
If you're living on nothing but potatoes, which 60% of the Irish population when the famine began, all they ate was potatoes. They had a little ditty they, they quoted to each other. It was this, potatoes at morning, potatoes at night. And if I wake up at midnight, I'll still eat potatoes. That's what they said. I think it's catchy. TikTok that somebody. So that's all they were eating. <laughs> but to survive on potatoes and nothing but potatoes, you have to eat 10 pounds a day. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is 10 pounds of potatoes, which is what people ate per day in Ireland. And they were happy. And they were poor, but they were happy with their potatoes and their little fires and their houses. And they were procreating like rabbits. And then the potato died. Just about every single potato plant in the entire Ireland, island of Ireland, succumbed to something called a blight, which ironically connecting to our text, came from South America, it's believed, smuggled in with bat guano, with the droppings of a bat that the British were obsessed with because they thought it was the best fertilizer anybody could find. And so smuggled in was this disease that caused every potato to turn black and slimy and rotten. Now imagine if all you had to live on, the, the difference between life and death was potatoes, and then one day you woke up and every single potato was dead. You, my friends, would be Matt Damon. Okay, so not to trivialize what would have been horrific because people began to starve to death. And the landlords, most of them cared nothing and were happy to evict if the people couldn't pay the bills. So their choice was get evicted or literally I'm going to die. And you can see some of the photos that were hand-drawn in that day to depict this. This is one of the most iconic from the potato famine. Drawings of, of people scratching at the dirt, hoping for anything they could find. Mothers with children, not knowing what to say to their crying baby. Mothers were found dead with their baby still on their breast. And if they couldn't pay the bills, if they wouldn't pawn their clothing, which many people were forced to do wearing nothing but rags, they would be evicted. And the eviction went like this. The slumlord would bring in a contingent of troops and they would rip the homes off the house and knock down one of the walls. And in many parts of Ireland to this day, you can see homes with just structures of walls, no roofs on them. Families would move into ditches which they would cover over and have a roof, literally a family living in a ditch, nothing to eat. And that's when the disease started to show up because disease always follows famine. Typhus, cholera, scurvy, fevers. People began to get so sick because they were eating anything they could find. Literally, in Skibberdeen, they ate donkeys. Anything they could find. Many would steal. But if you stole anything, you're, the, the crime for that would be to put, be put onto a prison ship and sent to the penal colony in Australia. 40,000 Irish were deported to Australia during the potato famine. And this went on and on and on. Many people chose to not uh, stay there and die, and so they fled. Moving to Liverpool in England, moving to Canada, moving to America. And to do so would be to face what was called the coffin ships. The coffin ships were lumber ships retrofitted to, uh, it's the next picture actually, uh, retrofitted to hold as many people as possible. 
50,000 people, it's estimated, died on the coffin ships coming and going across the Atlantic. Not enough water, not enough food. These, most of these people were illiterate, had no other trades, had no idea how they were going to make it in the new world. Many of them, when coming to America, dealt with what was called nativism, where there was a sense that America is for the real Americans and you're not welcome and you're not wanted and you're just here to steal jobs. And then, yes, the coffin we did show. The coffins, they did not have enough uh, coffins for all the dead and dying. And so they invented something called the breakaway coffin. It was a coffin with a latch. You'd put the dead body into it, put it over an open grave, and after the funeral or wake was done, they would just pull the lever, and the body would fall out into a mass grave, and then the casket would be reused over and over and over and over again. Now, in this dark... Horrific chapter, it's unbelievable to even say, but the total dead count, it is believed, was one million from the great Irish potato famine. And the count of those who left Ireland was two million. Now consider this, the population going into the famine was about eight million. And so now over one third of the nation has been emptied out. This is why it's been called the greatest crisis of Europe in the 19th century. The effects would be like 100 million Americans instantly gone in a five-year period. It would be like a nuclear bomb going off in a nation. But there were bright moments, much like in the darkness of the Syrian raid, and you had these lepers, and you had their kindness and the warmth. You saw people around the country doing what England failed to do, whether it was through inaction or that they actually wanted the Irish gone. The English did very little. They opened up soup kitchens, but you had to renounce your religion in order to have soup. They opened up workhouses, but a majority of the people who went in many of these workhouses ended up dying, but you also had to renounce anything you owned before you could go in. It was called the destitute law. So they didn't give with an open hand, open heart. But there were societies called relief societies that sprang up in England, sprang up in America, where people would pool their resources and do anything they could. My two personal favorite anecdotes of the relief that sprang up during the, the Great Hunger was a group of people in Calcutta, India, who banded together to give what they could to send relief to the Irish. And my other favorite is the Choctaw native people from the area of Oklahoma which were fresh off of the Trail of Tears. They came together and gave every little penny they could and sent $147, care of the Irish who are hungry. To think of people who are dealing with such great lack in their life, caring for others is just such a beautiful picture of the gospel and leads us to the first of a few takeaway truths I want you to jot down, and that is this. You don't need to have a lot in order to do a lot. And I love that about the gospel. I love that about these lepers. I love that God could have chosen anyone to bring an end to the famine. God could have used anyone to, 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 to open up the, the floodgates of food, but he chose to use those who were outside the city. It's a picture of Christ because leprosy in scripture always points to sin. And Jesus Christ was hung outside the walled city of Jerusalem to become sin for us. So those outside of the city, they're the ones who announce salvation to those who are in the city, even as Jesus, he went out to hang and to announce freedom to us. He didn't choose 
the wealthy. He didn't choose the powerful. Not many of us are the wisest of the world. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. When God wants to take down a giant, he looks for a little 90-pound weakling. When God wants to feed a multitude, he looks for somebody. All they got is a Lunchable. Come on, somebody. I'm just wanting to encourage you, poor college students, that you can make a difference on your campus. You can make a difference in your home. You can make a difference in your world. You don't have to have a lot to do a lot. And then secondly... This story, it teaches us irrefutably, write this down, that hard times don't change you. They make you more of what you already are. Those who turn to cannibalism, turn even on their own family, deceit, these things come out, but so does kindness and compassion. These lepers whose life would have been full of being called unclean, feeling like they were unwanted, they were not welcome, they were not, no one would touch them. How long had it been since they had had a hug? And yet here they are as they eat probably the first meal they had had in longer than anyone in the city. And their hearts and their minds go to those who are not yet at the feast, those who are not yet inside. You see, hard times don't change you, they reveal you. And this is why it is crucial that you learn to build your life on the rock because when the storms come, when the rain comes, it is going to reveal what you have built your life on. To think, well, eventually I'll get strong in my walk with God. Eventually I'll begin to read and study scripture. Eventually I'll begin to learn how to pray. Eventually I'll begin to tithe. Eventually, eventually, eventually. One day will never actually come because then when that difficulty comes, you will find that you did not build your life on the solid rock. Then thirdly, this story tells me, and I love this, that there is a sound that terrifies the enemy. When God wanted to drive the Syrians away, he could have done anything he wanted to do, but he made a sound. He caused a sound. The Syrians heard something. They didn't see something. And when they heard something, the world saw something. When God wanted to create a world, he spoke, let there be light. And he made you in his image with the power of life and death bound up in your tongue. Church, I came to tell you, Passion 2022, I came to tell you, there's a sound that terrifies the enemy. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. Our worship, our praise, our confession, our testimony terrifies the enemy and there is one name above every other name that's been given it's the mighty matchless name of Jesus and in your low moments your weak moments your tempted moments your moments where you feel like you have nothing more to give call out to the Lord and you will mount up with wings as eagles these soldiers began to run terrified leaving every valuable thing in their life as they ran towards the hills because they heard the sound. I love that we are, we are hearing the sound of praise rise up from the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. The story also tells us, number four, that in his providence, God can redeem what in his sovereignty he could have prevented. 
I want you to let that sink in, to have space, to have gears, because so much of the time in Scripture when we see famine happening, we only see it from the humanly perspective. We have to wait till afterwards to see what he was up to. And in the middle of a famine, in the middle of a hard time, the easiest thing in the world to do is to wonder where is God and he's working is the answer. He could have stopped it in his sovereignty, but he allowed it in his providence because he has a plan to use it to accomplish his plans in the world for his glory and your good. So church, let's relax and be confident that our God is on the throne and that he is up to something in every dark day. So how do we see that in the potato famine? How do we see that in a million dying? Two million leaving their homes. Well, think of the impact. The Irish population, population was over eight million people. Three million gone, they're under five million people. Which, by the way, to this present day, the island of Ireland, including north and south, still has never regained pre-famine populations. It's at 6.9 million people right now. So where's the impact? Here's the impact. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you have or know of any Irish ancestry in your body or in your family. Please look around, because I'm included as 20% Irish as well. There are 80 million people in the world with Irish ancestry in their blood. That means that there are 10 times as many people in the world today who are Irish as there were in Ireland at the time of its greatest population ever. And some pretty notable moments. A family called Ford was forced to leave Ireland, ended up in Canada, then made their way to Detroit. Hello, Henry Ford. Heard of him? There was a family called Lennon that left and went to Liverpool during the famine. Also McCartney, also called Harrison. Thank you, we have the Beatles because of the potato famine. There is this, this, this way that it just shows up in, in history. Uh, how about the Kennedys that came over and ended up in the East Coast and you, now you have a president just a couple generations away from being treated like human refuse. 150,000 Irish soldiers formed the Irish Brigade in the Civil War. One of them was named Thomas Marr, close personal friends with Abraham Lincoln. He was the one who uh, gave Ireland the, the tricolor flag. He had this vision to start a new Ireland because there's a New York, New Hampshire, new, new, new everything. Why can't there be New Ireland? So you know where he went to start it? Montana. He became the acting governor of Montana, trying to start New Ireland, and to this present day, Butte, Montana has a higher percentage per capita of Irish citizens than even Boston, Massachusetts. How you like us now? And in front of the capital of the state of Montana, there's a statue of this guy for the courage he showed, the way he led, the hardships he endured. All I'm trying to get you to see is that we have a mandate from our Savior, and it has always been the same thing. Go out into the whole world and make disciples of every creature. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But the church didn't do that 
didn't begin to even fulfill that Acts 1-8 mandate until Acts 8-1 when a great persecution arose and so they ended up going to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. God wants us to be a generation who will never ask him the stupid question, do we go? He didn't stutter and it wasn't the great suggestion. So what prayer do we pray? The prayer we pray is, am I called to have boots on the ground or to bankroll the dream of someone else's heart that I stay and create wealth to fund someone else who is going? We are all called to live and breathe, to not just be excited by the gathering, but to be invigorated by the scattering. This is the party. This is the feast. The food is great. The eating is wonderful. The songs we get to sing. The fact that we've been redeemed, it's wonderful. But what about the world? It is not good, the thing we are doing, if we remain silent. Because the war is over. The enemy is defeated. But the people don't yet know it. So we must go tell the rest of the king's kids where to find the food that we are so happy to have. I want to honor one student who has done that so well, who's here. Kendall Smith is here from Colorado State University. Kendall's sister, Addison, at the age of 20, a student at Baylor University went home to be with Jesus this summer. And Addison and her family have been plunged into grief. Addison, Addison's sister Kendall had always the dream of coming to Passion since she was a student in high school. And so it would be understandable for her to say, I'm just going to come to this feast. I'm just going to come to the party. I just need this. I just need this for my own journey. But she took up a side hustle at Instacart in the days leading up to Passion 2022 so she could fund two brothers from Tanzania named PG and PJ so they could be here as well. Their flight got delayed in Chicago, but we're praying they get in for tomorrow. Their names stand for Praise God and Praise Jesus. And because Kendall has had the vision of those who are not at the feast, they're going to be here at the party as well. And my prayer is that God would help us all to see that is our duty, that is our honor in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>